Theological education should be affordable. Seminary students should not have to take out tens of thousands of dollars in student loans to train for the ministry. At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, our students pay a base of $75 per credit hour and a $375 per semester fee. For more information on how you can receive informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, check out our website, cbtseminary.org. Welcome to the Man of God Network. The Man of God Network is a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan, a sermon audio source for Puritan and Reformed audiobook recordings. The name Patrick Hughes-Mell, doubtless, is unknown to many of the people listening to this podcast. He was one of the most influential educators and ministers in 19th century Georgia, For almost 50 years, he served as professor of ancient languages and chief administrator at Mercer University and the University of Georgia, and he has also held leadership roles in the Southern Baptist and Georgia Baptist conventions. His greatest influence as a moderator of numerous religious educational assemblies earned him the designation Prince of Parliamentarians. That is from the Georgia Encyclopedia. We are reading from a book called The Life of Patrick Hughes-Mell by his son, P.H. Mell, Jr., called to preach the gospel, chapter 4. While living in Oxford, and on the 25th of February, 1839, he wrote to Reverend Josiah Samuel Law, pastor of the North Newport Baptist Church in Liberty County, Georgia, who baptized him before he left for Amherst. The letter shows how unsettled his mind had become under the strain of those years of toil and struggle against almost insurmountable obstacles. In reading the accounts of his early life, it seems remarkable that his integrity and strength of character were able to withstand a great strain. Cast adrift among strangers, far from kindred and friends, with no money to meet the necessities of life, and with brothers and sisters in the far southern home, dependent on him alone for support. These experiences might have crushed natures even stronger than his, but a wise providence was watching over his destiny, and a merciful God had him in the hollow of his hand. Although he stumbled now and then, and the wave swept over his head, still this letter shows that he was brought through in safety, and the prayers of his mother were answered, My heart burns to see you in every sense of the word, a Christian. Parts of the epistle show a very desperate condition of mind at the time, but they represent a portion of the struggle through which Mr. Mel had to pass and they make the after years of his life appear more glorious in comparison. As has been already stated, this letter is to me a remarkable portrayal of character and of God's dealings with one of whom much was required. I earnestly hope that its perusal, when taken in connection with the long and useful life of Dr. Mel, may be the means of helping some who may pass through a similar experience and enable them to force their way over opposing difficulties. Reverend and dear sir, you have no doubt been aware from your own observations 
And from the testimony of others, notwithstanding, you have received no confession from me of the fact that I have been for some years past careless in regard to the interests of eternity and a backslider from the faith I professed. When I gave up my hope, I was absent from the state and did not inform you of it, as I thought, erroneously, I have since been informed. There were but two ways, according to the rules of the church, by which my connection with it could be dissolved. One, by a dismission in regular standing, should I wish to connect myself with another body, and another by excommunication, and I suppose the latter to be administered only when the number violated any of the obvious rules of morality, or at least such as the church has instituted to regulate its outward conduct. My object in writing to you at present is to ascertain whether my name is still on the church books, so that I may be able to discover what my duty may be under the circumstances. Augustus Bacon, in a conversation I had with him some time since, remarked that you had informed him it had been taken off by my request, but I think it must be a mistake as I made but one application, and that was for permission to connect myself with the Amherst Baptist Church. And as I heard nothing from you, I concluded you had not received it. I shall very much be indebted to you for an immediate answer to this, and for instructions as to wait course to pursue in order to renew my connection with the church. The Lord has dealt mercifully with me and has been pleased to bring me from the most awful lengths of unbelief and to humiliate me at the foot of the cross. I think I can say that I have the firmest belief relying humbly upon his promises that he has for Christ's sake pardoned all my sins. It is almost more than I can realize and when I consider who I am and what I have been, and how I have trifled with this subject, I am filled with astonishment that I can by possibility arrive at such a state of mind as to believe that I have passed from death unto life. Perhaps it is my duty to narrate to you the history of my heart and the dealings of the Lord with me, and I hope you will look upon the following as proceeding from that feeling and not view it in the light of obtrusive egotism. When I connected myself with the church— I was entirely ignorant of the religion I was professing, since I say not to clear myself from the imputation of instability, nor any measure as an apology, but as an awful fact that I professed to believe in a God of whom I knew nothing. Living by faith in Christ, laying hold of his promises and trusting him for their fulfillment, though read often and heard oftener, astonishing as it may seem to you, and it cannot surprise you more than it does me now. I never attached any idea to as a part of the gospel plan, and instead of seeking the witness of the Spirit of God which might bear witness with my spirit that I was born again, I looked to my own animal feelings for the proof of my acceptability with God, feelings which a pathetic story, theatrical representations, and harmony of sound have often since produced. And I was assured that all was right if I could succeed in exciting those feelings on rising from my bed in the morning and on retiring at night, especially if I could have them accompanied by a few tears. This, sir, was my religion. This was the sandy foundation on which I built. And it was not to be wondered at that the waves of the world beating on my house should overthrow it. The comforts of religion were to me but a name 
I sought God's face, not because I loved him, but because I feared him. I looked upon him not as one who could smile upon me and bless me too, but as an angry God who would punish me for my sins. I renounced the world not because I saw its vanity compared with the things of eternity, but because I felt myself compelled from motives of safety. And I am bound to believe, though as what I could not consent to confess to myself at the time, that if I had only been assured that I had nothing to fear from God's righteous indignation, I should never have renounced them and connected myself with his people. Such was my religious state when I left home for college. And now I was placed in the midst of new scenes and new associates. My attention and interest became absorbed by other subjects. God and the things of eternity became less and less interesting to me. My efforts to create a good state of feeling became less and less strenuous with frequent intermissions. From indifference for my soul's salvation, I glided by an imperceptible current to a distaste for the subject, to a downright dislike for it, and finally, openly and joyfully threw off the restraints that my religion had imposed upon me and buried myself in the world. The failure to obtain that change of heart which the Bible spoke of, induced me to question its reality and to believe at first that it had its existence only in the heated imagination of enthusiasts, and then that it was a cunningly devised fable invented by priestcraft to gull the simple and perpetuate its power. And thus the Bible came to be viewed as an imposture, and God's people as deluders and deluded. And it only remained for me to consummate my unbelief by doubting the existence of a God. Yes, with my eyes upturned to the heavens, which declare his glory, and open upon the beautiful material world around me, which shows his handiwork, I said in my heart, and rejoice that I could say it, there is no God. But my merciful Heavenly Father has forgiven me that sin. When I think of the awful depths of unbelief to which I had struggled, I am filled with amazement at the long-suffering and mercy of God, and that He did not suddenly cut me off, or give me over to hardness of heart and blindness of mind, to believe a lie. And now my whole heart became absorbed in the things of this world. God and religion were not thought of except to be blasphemed and sneered at, not openly, for motives of prudence induced me to conceal my state that I might not shock the minds of men and thus throw a barrier in the way of my temporal prospects. Ambition now took entire possession of my soul, a desire to rise above my fellows in mental stature, not so much that I might be able to do more good as that I might be a mark for all to gaze at. This a desire to become great in the world had been a principle with me from my earliest recollection, though I had the good sense to conceal it from my acquaintances generally. And often I was a poor boy destitute of even the necessities of life. I would still delight myself picturing in my imagination scenes of future grandeur and triumph in which I would be the actor." Those were but dreams, it is true, but dreams that expelled from my thoughts everything that did not administer to them. 
And at the time I am speaking of, my mind had become spiritually darkened that I could have accomplished fame by it. I verily believe I would have been willing to renounce without the slightest sinking of the heart, thenceforth and forever all interest in the atonement of Christ, whose very existence I doubted. Such was my state when a little more than a year ago I returned home. But I have extended this already to an unbecoming length. It only remains for me to relate as briefly as possible the means by which my thoughts were again diverted to the things of eternity. And here I have no signal interposition to relate, no occurrence to point out as having been instrumental in rousing me to a sense of my awful condition. But it pleased God that I should be placed in a situation where I could be frequently alone where, by influences of his Holy Spirit, he might turn my thoughts inward, and the still small voice of conscience might be heard. The world, too, previous to this, had begun to assume rather a different aspect in my eye. Circumstances had happened which affected me alone, it is true, and which had made a deep impression on me. Experience had shown me that the affections of friends, even who wished me well, could easily be alienated, and that from the world I was just as likely to receive censor for that which deserved commendation as the contrary. During my absence from Georgia, All the time not devoted to the discharge of my duties had been spent in amusements or in company of which I possessed an unlimited command, and thus thoughts on religion had no opportunity of intruding themselves upon me. But after my return I engaged in business very much at the time against my own consent, in a part of the country that is very thinly settled, where there was not a single young person of my own age with whom I could associate. Added to this was the fact that I was not in a situation to occupy my vacation time with books, so that certain hours every day I was left alone with myself. During these periods, God was pleased to be near me and to induce such a train of thought as to show me the vanity of earthly things and the weighty importance of things of eternity. The objections I had cherished against the existence of a God and the authenticity of the scriptures, now that I had an opportunity of thinking calmly and without interruption, lost their weight. The more particularly so as I had no opportunity of noting the inconsistencies of professing Christians and seldom heard the gospel preached. In this part of my experience, there is nothing standing out distinct to which I can refer as the cause of any result which followed. I commenced teaching school in that place confessedly with the belief that the Bible was all a fable, and if true, that it was never more to receive attention from me. And by steps that were imperceptible to me at the time and cannot be traced now, I was brought to relinquish all my doubts and to feel that even for me the subject had interest. But notwithstanding, for more than a year did I trifle with the subject, There was this doubt I had to solve, this mystery I had to look into, and I tried to satisfy myself with saying that religion was a subject I could not understand. Then, perhaps yielding to the influence of the moment, I would retire to a private place and try to pray. And because I did not receive a miraculous manifestation of God's presence in my heart, I would give up in despair, and perhaps the next moment with a zest, which would astonish myself, would join with the thoughtless and throw in ridicule on the Bible and religion. 
but not to multiply words. In this awful state did I continue until about three weeks ago, when God was pleased to bring me like a little child to the foot of the cross, and I was led to pray him to save me in his own way. I know I am weak and unable to persevere if I depend upon myself, but Christ is so strong and he has told me in his word his grace will be sufficient for me. Let me beg an interest in your prayers, as I have no doubt I have already had. Pray for me that I may not again deceive myself, but that I may build on the rock, Christ Jesus. Excuse the length of this communication. I could not well have written shorter. I hope you will not view it as gratuitous. I have written it because I was not sure that it was not my duty, and I did not know but that the church would require some such statement before they would consent to readmit me into fellowship with them. With sentiments of respect, I remain yours respectfully. P.H. Mel Among Dr. Mel's admirers and friends who were members of Antioch Church, none loved him more than Mrs. D.B. Fitzgerald. This attachment was sincerely returned by Dr. Mel, and for a number of years, Miss Crowley was an occupant of his home while pursuing a course of study under him, and he called her his adopted daughter. Being thus thrown in daily communion with him, she had a most excellent opportunity of studying his character. This lady has kindly furnished the following reminiscences of Dr. Mel's life while pastor of Antioch Church. As far back in the dim recollections of an early childhood as I can go, I recall old Antioch Church in Oglethorpe County, Georgia. Memory paints a scene in warm, soft colors, and tender associations weave a magic spell. As I recall the old-fashioned house with its elevated pulpit and the long rows of high benches where a restless little girl sat swinging her feet and listening in a vague way to the words that fell from the lips of the preacher. The old church was modernized long years ago. Many comforts and graces have been added to its interior, and the white walls glisten outside as it stands in board in the grove of giant oaks that have overshadowed it for more than threescore years. There I first attended divine services under the preaching of Reverend P.H. Mel. Permitted under a kind providence to grow up under his pastoral hand, receiving first a child's share of his ministrations and comprehending little of what was said. Then, as I grew up learning more and more of his marvelous power, I was led to the Savior by his faithful guidance. Baptized by him and afterwards sitting at his feet as a pupil, occupying a chair by his fireside, sharing in the love he bestowed on his children, receiving often from his fatherly lips a tender epithet, my daughter. It is with both pleasure and pain I bring a tribute of affection to place in this memorial volume. Quote, Those people who decry long pastorates would find stout opposition in the communities where he preached. So strongly were the people attached to him that it was not unusual to hear the name of Mel's kingdom applied to this territory. The bond between pastor and people was so strong that though a temporary supply had to be put in during a long illness late in life, yet the church would never relinquish her claims on him until the summons to come up higher was spoken by the master. When first called to take charge of the church, Dr. Mel found it in a sad state of confusion. He said a number of members were drifting off into Arminianism. He loved the truth too well to blow hot and cold with the same breath. 
If it was a Baptist church, it must have doctrines peculiar to that denomination preached to it. And with that boldness, clearness, and vigorous speech that marked him, he preached to them the doctrines of predestination, election, free grace, and so on. He said it was always his business to preach the truth as he found it in God's word and leave the matter there, feeling that God would take care of the results. But while he never swerved an inch from the defense of truth as he believed it, he was most courteous to those who differed with him. Among those who sat under his ministry for 10, 20, and 25 years were people of other denominations who were as warm friends as any he had. Some Methodist brethren attended every conference meeting as regularly as did those of his own flock, and it was a source of great pleasure to him. They might shake their heads at what they called his hard doctrine, but they would shake his hand as cordially at the close of the sermon, and they claimed a share of his visits as much as did the members of his own flock. He was in the midst of the trouble at Pinsfield when he took charge of the churches in Antioch and Bairdstown, and espousing his cause with that enthusiasm that always characterized his followers. They pledged themselves to his support and stood squarely beside him in all that painful period. This loyal affection was always a source of infinite gratification to him, and he often alluded to the fact, I know my people love me, he was wont to say, they have shown it unmistakably. Soon after his connection with Antioch Church, a circumstance arose to which he often recurred in after years and it did much to strengthen his reliance on the guiding hand of an overruling providence. A young lady of most beautiful Christian character, one greatly beloved by all who knew her, met a most tragic fate being burned to death. The death caused a great gloom to fall over the community. It was a custom in those days to have a funeral sermon preached months after the subject of the discourse had been buried. Her family, complying with the common practice, had arranged to have a discourse preached commemorative of her, and so requested Mr. Mel mentioning the time they had selected. It always pained Mr. Mel to disappoint anyone, and on such an occasion, when his sympathies were so aroused, and when he knew that none of the young lady's family except one were professors of religion, it grieved him to refuse such a request but to acquiesce was to overthrow all his plans. It was at the beginning of one of his annual meetings, and there was a deep anxiety on his part to have nothing disturb the minds of his people. He had even prepared a sermon for that very day, and to preach a funeral instead seemed to be unwise. And in as gentle terms as possible, he attempted to dissuade the lady's father from such a step. But the old gentleman insisted and gave such good reasons for so doing that Mr. Mel at last, though with a sad heart, consented to lay aside the sermon that he had thought really suited the needs of the people and instead to preach the memorial discourse. The more he inquired into the character of the young lady and of the awful circumstances of her death and of her hope in the Savior, the more he began to realize how it might be that God can make this an occasion to forward his work in the hearts of the people. The outcome of it was wonderful, for during the two weeks' meeting that followed, more than 60 people dated conviction from that sermon. Mr. Mel often referred to this as one of the best meetings he was ever in, for he baptized 50 into the church, five of whom were of the immediate family of the deceased lady, and some connected themselves with other churches.
Very much of his power as a preacher lay in the way he had of getting close to his people. His custom was to visit all of them. And so anxious were they not to miss the expected pleasure that he made engagements ahead, often as far as three months. The humblest householder was glad to entertain Brother Mail, and the same ease of manner characterized him whether he sat at the bountiful board of the rich, or broke the plain bread and partook of the cup of milk from the pine table of the poorest. There was never any stooping to be on an equality with any man or woman or little child. He regarded all as good and worthy until they had proven themselves to be otherwise. His own purity of motive won the confidence and esteem of others, and he never judged a man by the coat he wore or measured his worth by any uncouthness of manner or speech. The roughness might be only a lack of education and training. The course shall enclose in a good and wholesome fruit. And so he won first the admiration and then the love of all who came near him. He was the confidant of his people. They told him all their personal experiences, and he listened with tender sympathy. If a poor man was harassed with debt, broken-hearted over a willful child, or bowed down with bereavement, he never felt his load to be quite so heavy after he had talked it over with Brother Mel. Many a poor wife grieving over a wicked husband or son who cannot bear to mention her sorrow and shame to anyone else, told him all her heartbreak. He was no less a welcome addition to the merry groups of young folks. His keen appreciation of humor, his love of a good joke, his inimitable way of relating an anecdote, all made him an acquisition to any crowd or a pleasant companion at any fireside. To them all, he was a warm friend the kind, sympathetic, wise counselor, and faithful pastor. He was so evenly balanced in all his judgments that it was almost unheard of for anyone to object to his rulings in conference. If a member of the church was charged with unchristian conduct, the greatest care was exercised to prevent any false accusations and a case conducted with the greatest regard for the feelings of the offender. Dr. Mel always visited the one arraigned and listened to his side of the story and showed him his error in such a gentle and loving way that he almost always reclaimed the wanderer. In one instance, a brother was contrary and cold. His brethren could not get on peaceably with him. There was constant cause of complaint. At last, Dr. Mel said, let him alone. He was quietly ignored and left to himself. He began to reflect since it takes two to quarrel, and the end of it was that at a subsequent meeting he came with contrition and confession of faith and begged a brethren to forgive him and lived and died a useful member of the church. Dr. Mel's character was too positive not to find opponents in the world, and there were among outsiders some who said he was simply a strong doctrinal preacher, not an eloquent man, but one who fed his people on hard corn. If, as Webster says, eloquence is a power of expressing strong emotions in an effective and passion and elevated manner, then truly was Dr. Mel an eloquent man. No one who sat under his ministry if those two churches could make such an adverse criticism of him. He always prepared a skeleton of each discourse, which he fixed well in his mind before going into the pulpit, And after reading the text, he closed the Bible and preached without any notes before him. From the life of Patrick Hughes Mell.
As I finish this podcast, I'm looking at the website, heritagebooks.org. I looked up P.H. Mel, and the two books that they have by him are still very much on sale. A Southern Baptist looks at predestination, $5.50. The Life of Patrick Hughes Mel, which I have been reading from, hardback, $5. Thank you for tuning in to the Man of God podcast, Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. For more narrations, go to sermonaudio.com and do a search at The Narrated Puritan.